This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 11, Confession and Social Order. The purpose of the state is to lessen conflict within society and to further harmony between the peoples by protecting men from criminal acts, external enemies and injustices perpetrated by some against others. This purpose fails when it is the object solely of the state and not various institutions and agencies within society, or when the state usurps the powers of social institutions which have long served to protect social order. Without going into the part the Church and its agencies have played in social reconciliation, we can recognise that other agencies have had an important and major role. Merchants' associations have had a long history of settling disputes within their ranks, dealing with erring members and settling accounts. Their history in the medieval era and since has been an important one. In recent years, the 1970s for example, Burton S. Blumert, a merchant in gold coins, for a time owned Telex. He barred from the gold coin market on Telex anyone who sold counterfeit coins, even if also made of gold, who failed to make restitution. This type of policing and control was more common when the state's interference and controls were less in evidence. Over the centuries, Various guilds and associations exerted legislative control over their members. Their government was by no means perfect nor sin-free, but with state controls overall, state corruption means corruption, corrupt rule overall. The state has not only usurped power over all spheres, but it has also radically altered the nature of offences or crimes. As Henry C. Lee observed, Quote, the criminal was not responsible to the state, but to the injured party, and all that the state professed to do was to provide some definite process by which the latter could assert his rights. Personal chastisement for the free man was thus unknown, for each man was responsible for his acts not to the law, but to those whom he might wrong. All that the law pretended to do was to provide rude courts before which a plaintiff might urge his case and settled principles of pecuniary compensation to console him from his injuries. End quote. In our time, a criminal case is not John Doe versus James X, but the state versus the offender. The state can feel free to dismiss the charges or to allow a lesser plea without consulting the offended person or, if dead, his family. This shift was a major legal revolution in Western history, 
the state replaced the offended person and the state determined whether or not to prosecute. Quote, According to Lee, our barbarian ancestors had another system, one in which the family was central. If a crime were committed, the parties then involved were the families of the victim and of the criminal. In this system, to cite Lee, quote, The kindred of the offender were obliged to contribute shares proportionate to their degrees of relationship, while those of the man who was wronged received respective percentages calculated on the same basis. End quote. It would be absurd to say that this was a perfect or always effective system, but it did have some qualities effective in controlling crime. First, it meant that each family had a very great concern in keeping all members, up to fifth and sixth cousins, in line. Their criminal conduct could be costly to all. This system survived into the 20th century in some areas, and it may well still exist here and there. From conversations with those who were part of it, I know of its general effectiveness. It provided the basic law and order where it existed. This was because, second, the family member who refused to comply with the system was then an, outlaw, an outlaw in the eyes of his family and all others. Even in large cities, a man was not employable unless a known family stood behind him to ensure his good behaviour. This control extended not only to employment, but also to marriage. The stability of a marriage rested not only on the man and the woman, but also on the controlling power of both families. This kind of family government existed in some pagan cultures and was very strong in Jewish and Christian circles. Clan and family feuds began to mark the breakdown of this system. In such a system, the fault of one person required restitution to the fifth or sixth generation. It may be a coincidence, but the medieval church's laws of consanguinity roughly paralleled the family ties which bound men together in a form of social insurance. All of this is related to confession and absolution. Government, in a biblical sense, means more than the state. It is, first of all, the self-government of man. Every man has a responsibility under God to govern himself. Second, the basic governmental institution is the family, which is man's first school, government, economic order, society and more. Third, the school is a government and a Levitical ministry. Fourth, the church is a government. Fifth, our vocation or work governs us. Sixth, society with its norms, its many agencies and institutions also governs us. Seventh, the state is a government, one form of government among many. All these are interdependent governments, and none have a calling to dominate the others. That right belongs to God. To equate the state with government is totalitarian, and it leads to the obliteration of other aspects of society. Because confession and absolution free a man from sin and guilt, they are important socially as well as religiously. Confession witnesses to a norm beyond man and society. As a result, it is essential to social order. A common stance in the 20th century among fathers and mothers, 
and especially some mothers, is to declare, I will stand by my son or daughter no matter what happens. One sees parents defending a son who, when drunken, hit someone while driving and killed that person. Bad companions, not the son, are blamed. Or, a son is guilty of date rape. The girl, the boy's mother, will insist, is no good and egged on her son and then lied as to who was responsible. So it goes. As against all this, we have a text which is bitterly resented, as much by the churchmen as by those outside the church. Quote, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that, when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, and bring him out unto the elders of his city, and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elder of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he shall die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. End quote from Deuteronomy 21:18-21. This text, even churchmen will insist, is about stoning babies. Some will say innocent babies. It is about a young man, or even an older man, who is incorrigibly delinquent. Specific crimes are not mentioned. It is the unceasingly evil behaviour. Three attitudes are mentioned as characteristic of his relationship his relation to the family. First, he despises family authority so that efforts on the family's part to bring him out of his criminality are fruitless. Second, he is a glutton and third, a drunkard, meaning that he is not only criminal but is also contemptuous of the family's authority and a parasite on it, using the family instead of working as a member of it. A confession is required of the parents as to this evil in their son. They must not identify with criminal and sinful conduct, but with God's required order. Because there is neither confession nor repentance on the part of the son, or in other cases, some other family member who has gone astray, the parents, or if they are dead, the nearest relative, must confess the person's waywardness so that the court can deal with the matter. This law was the basis of the long-standing law in the United States states requiring the death of habitual criminals. The son here in Deuteronomy 21.18-21 is a habitual criminal. The family attests to his unwillingness to be a working member of that family so that in no area of his life there is, em is there anything but evil. This law of Deuteronomy 21.18-21 is closely related to the law of Deuteronomy 21.1-9. When a murder occurs and the murderer cannot be found, then the elders and the judges of the nearest city must perform a ceremony and offer a sacrifice to put away the guilt of innocent blood. The sin of murder must be recognised. The elders and judges, having tried to find the murderer, confess their innocence of the crime and confess the fact of the crime. They cannot be indifferent to the fact of the murder, however unknown or unimportant the victim. The loss of sensitivity to evil because it is in one's own family, from Deuteronomy 21, 18-21, or because it is an unknown person, 
from Deuteronomy 21, 1-9 is morally wrong. The existence of evil in our societies requires confession to God and reconciliation to him. The state, at present, assumes all the responsibility for dealing with evil. As a result, the many evils and crimes in the society become less and less the concern of individuals and families. They are, at most, usually no more than items in the press or in the evening news. The multiform ways of confession, when observed, require a society to see evil as every man's concern. Even as thanksgiving in any Christian sense has waned, so too has confession. Both confession and thanksgiving stress the God-centred character of life. This is the end of chapter 11. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.